<laughs> Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This particular episode is one of a very special series in that there are collaboration between In the Corner Back by the Woodpile and the China History Podcast. I can't tell you how thrilled I am not only to be talking about the subject matter, but to be doing it with the great yet humble Laszlo Montgomery. If you're unfamiliar with the China History Podcast, be it of the Zhongguo persuasion or otherwise, you've got to check it out. You can go over to teacup.media or just search for it on whatever platform you get your podcast. It'll be there. I'll always have a special place in my heart for the China History Podcast as that I discovered it while living behind the bamboo curtain. I kept finding myself either totally ignorant about some certain incident in the middle country's epic story or confused by the, we'll say, other version of China's history. Not to fear, Mr. Montgomery usually had an episode for whatever I needed clearing up. Okay, enough of that. Let's get into the program. Welcome back again, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here. This time, in the latest installment of the CHP, we're going back to 1920s, 30s, and 40s Shanghai. Now, before you say, there he goes again, glorifying those pre-liberation imperialist days, let me just say there was a whole bunch of things that came out of that period in Shanghai that, still today, people look back on with no small amount of nostalgia. Most of all, perhaps, were the new forms of literature, Art and entertainment, among other things, of course, not least of which were the advertisements. In this series, we're going to focus mainly on the decades of the 1930s and 40s. Whitey Smith, who we looked at in CHP episode 193, as well as others, had sort of primed the pump to some degree with the ballroom jazz sounds they brought with them from America to Shanghai in 1922. In this mini-series, we're going to look at the stories and histories of these seven women who, in the 1930s and 40s, rose to great heights in the world of music, film, and entertainment. They were seven singing sensations whose songs provided a soundtrack for those times when the international settlement and French concession in Shanghai was having this wild party that lasted hot and cold until some other party came along in 1949, won't mention their name, and put an end to this unique culture that was all tangled up with imperialism and foreign domination. I might as well not bury the lead. We aren't going to get to the individual stories of these seven women in this part one episode. First, I'd like to set the stage and introduce the dynamic in China prior to the years when these women were the toast of China and Southeast Asia. These women became known as the Qi Da Ge Xing, these seven great singing stars. They were also called the Qi Da Ge Hou, the seven great singing queens. They were Zhou Xuan, Bai Hong, Bai Guang, Yao Li, Li Xianglan, Wu Yingyin, and Gong Qiu Xia. This topic had been lingering on the CHP shelf for years, and thanks to my good friend and fellow podcaster in the hills of central Kentucky, spun counter guy of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, 
is finally seeing the light of day. I asked him to share a bit of his familiarity with these times to help me out a bit in telling this story. In discussing the Qi Da Geshing, these seven singing stars, you have to first introduce the one person who, well, more than anyone else, laid the foundation for this sound. Without the person we'll focus on in this episode, Li Jinhui, there wouldn't have been any seven great singing stars in the 1930s and 40s. So I thought I'd start this episode off by introducing his life and the times he lived in. He was the one who started it all, the father of Chinese pop music. Li Jinhui was born September 5th, 1891. The 10th and second to last Qing emperor, Guangxu, was about halfway through his miserable and frustrating reign. The Li family came from Hunan, Xiangtan to be exact. Mao Zedong would be born two years later, less than an hour away from where Li Jinhui spent his earliest days. There were eight brothers in this well-off, intellectual, and overachieving family. They were called the Li Shi Ba Jun, the eight brothers or eight stallions of the Li family. Li Jinhui was Lao Er, the second brother. The eldest was Li Jinxi. Li Jinxi was a renowned linguist, educator, and the father of the Chinese phonetic alphabet. He was also a good friend of Chairman Mao, and in fact, was one of Mao's teachers at one time. What I found quite interesting is that Li Jinxi remained a friend of Mao for 60 years and managed to survive the friendship just fine. You can't say that about most of the people close to the chairman. Li Jinxi dedicated his entire life to teaching, studying, and reforming the Chinese language. The youngest brother, Li Jinyang, or C.Y. Li, who just died last year in 2018, aged 102, was a Chinese-American author who, in 1957, wrote the novel Flower Drum Song. This book inspired Rodgers and Hammerstein to write the play that ran on Broadway in 1958. The Oscar-nominated film adaptation came out in 1961. Uh, the talented David Henry Huang revived the musical in 2001. I talked about Flower Drum Song in that CHP 159 episode about Anna Mae Wong and the Chinese stars of old Hollywood. Li Jinhui's other brother, Li Jinguang, was also a musician and composer. And these two brothers worked closely together throughout their careers in the music industry. And those of you familiar with this old music might know one of his more famous pieces. Li Jinguang was the one who wrote Ye Lai Xiang. <laughs> He, too, along with his brother, was also considered one of the pioneers of Chinese pop music. For a while, Li Jinguang was married to one of the seven stars I'm going to introduce in part two, Bai Hong. As I mentioned, Li Jinhui was born in 1891. That meant he was 20 when the Qing Dynasty fell and 28 when May 4th happened. And he just happened to be in Beijing for the birth of the whole new culture movement born at the right time. Tsai Yuanpei, Li Dachao, Chen Duxiu, Hu Shi, and Mao, who was still a minor player back then. Li Jinhui knew them all. And Mao, coming from the same part of Hunan as Li, 
Yeah, those two could converse easily in their local Xiang dialect. So Li Jinhui, he was in the thick of all that excitement. And he too had the same patriotic aspirations for China as the rest of them. And he was excited to play a role in gently coaxing the nation and the people out of their traditional comfort zone and into the modern world. All the great thinkers and writers of that time, the early 20s, had their own ideas about how to change society. And Li Jinhui's way to do it was to merely take the traditional and already familiar Chinese folk culture and modify it ever so slightly so that the masses could more naturally get behind it. The Trojan horse that Li Jinhui devised was children's music and entertainment. Just as with the new literature that grew out of the new culture movement, new music and dance as well found fresh forms that were attractive to the masses. It was mostly Chinese and familiar, but also a little something else, too. And to get the word out and introduce this new music and dance culture to the masses, Li Jinhui established these song and dance troops. In Chinese, these are called Ge Wu Tuan. That was the medium he used that proved to be quite effective and wildly popular. And he established schools that children went to that taught this new music and dance. And he wrote all these musical dramas and a whole slew of songs that would be performed by these guutuans, these song and dance ensembles. You know when you hear it for the first time, these children, including young teens, singing in that insanely sweet and high-pitched childish way. It might sound sort of weird to unfamiliar ears, but to Chinese who had already been hearing this sound for a thousand years or more through Chinese opera and folk music, it wasn't that far of a stretch. And Li Jinhui's own teenage daughter, Li Minghui, she was part of the act and sang a lot of these early songs. And it would be one of these songs called Mao Mao Yu that came out 92 years ago in 1927, written by Li Jinhui with his daughter Li Minghui singing, that became the first ever big hit for this new kind of emerging music called Chinese popular or pop music, Liu Xing Yue. In Mandarin, a little later on, they started to call this new sound Shi Dai Chu, the songs of this age. This Shi Dai Chu genre was the Yuantou, the fountainhead from which everything that followed in Chinese pop music sprang from. And little Li Minghui went on to become China's first pop music star. One of the two scholars of this period I want to introduce to you, Dr. Andrew Jones up at UC Berkeley, wrote of this new music, quote, The lyrics were cobbled together from a variety of different sources, including Tang Dynasty love poems, Chinese and European folk songs, and the romantic cliches of Tin Pan Alley, end quote. 
Hey, Spahn, what was Tin Pan Alley? Tin Pan Alley, if you've never heard that term before, was the place in New York City on West 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. This is where pop music in America began, and in the mid-1880s, Irvin Berlin, George Gershwin, and others came out of that world. And Li Jinhui was bringing this sound to China, quietly, with Chinese characteristics. And the emphasis was on love songs. Good choice. Poems about love had been enjoyed in China since time immemorial. Surely the same held true for these new kinds of songs. They weren't wrong about that. This Shitaichu music, Andrew Jones said, was, quote, a hybrid genre of American jazz, Hollywood film music, and Chinese folk songs, end quote. In many cases, they took Western melodies and wrote new Chinese lyrics for them. This was all beginning to unfold in the late 1920s, early 1930s, and Shanghai was the center of it all. The most famous of all these dance troops assembled by Li Jinhui, as well as others who had the same idea, was called the Bright Moon Song and Dance Troupe, the Mingyue Guotuan. And he brought these kids on tour around China and all over Southeast Asia. By the 1920s and 30s, Southeast Asia already had a very mature and sizable overseas Chinese community in place that had grown substantially over the centuries. In Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, and Thailand. The potential that existed as far as a market for all this new music and entertainment seemed unlimited. The music and film was just one part of the bigger picture. There was also something else that had started to mature just as these song and dance troops were performing in all these places. Right as this new music was ramping up and gaining acceptance, there were all these new technologies that, by the 1920s, began to be more accessible to people everywhere. These were inventions like the gramophone, radio broadcasting, talking pictures, and a growth in nightclubs and ballrooms. Let's talk about the gramophone, or the record player as we might say today. We take it for granted these days of being able to hear any song anytime from any place in the world. It's nothing to us to be able to access thousands of songs, whether it's via a virtual cloud or on a thumb drive the size of a, well, your thumb. But in all the time before the 20th century, if you wanted to hear some music, you had to either go see some live musicians or sing to yourself. Though there were earlier attempts to capture sound, including wax cylinders and Edison discs, it was the 78 records that became the standard format from around 1925 until the 1950s. I won't bore you with the details except to say that the 78s were these thick black discs made from shellac, which made them incredibly heavy and fragile. If you've ever wanted to explore the world of lower back pain, try lugging a milk crate full of these babies up a couple of flight of stairs. And for these discs to play back the sound as it had been recorded, they had to be spun around at least 78 times per minute, hence their name. In spite of the 78's temperamental qualities, by the 1920's you could listen to folk singers or symphonies from far off lands in the comfort of your own home. And if you were a musician or singer who wanted to be heard outside of your hometown, all you had to do was bogart your way into a recording session, and soon the whole world might be swooning along to your grooves. Hey, yo, hey, hey, yo. 
Many of the most popular Shanghai pop songs the masses first heard were being sung in the movies. Traveling Songbird, Sorrows of the Forbidden City, Nightingale and the Willow, and Three Stars Surrounding the Moon are just a few of the films that made big stars out of their performers and big hits out of the songs that they sang. Thanks, Bun. But back to Lee Jinhui, let me quote Andrew Jones again. Quote, Lee unwittingly set this process of professionalism in motion by providing an institutional funnel through which talented youngsters would graduate from his children's dramas into the wider world of musical cinema. End quote. Yeah, you heard that right. Most of the names of these immortal singers whose voices define those times in Shanghai during the 1930s and 40s, they came from this Mingyue Ge Wu Tuan, Li Jinhui's Bright Moon Song and Dance Troupe. That was the incubator that fed China's early radio, music, and movie business with a steady stream of stars and fresh young faces that would energize this budding industry. And this sound permeated throughout China and to all overseas Chinese communities wherever a radio or gramophone could be found. As soon as that song, Ma Mao Yu, went to the top of the pops in Shanghai, 1927-1928, Li Jinhui knew he was onto something and decided to focus his efforts on composing for this new emerging market, as the venerable Mark Mobius might call it. And to make all of this happen and get this sound spread out for the masses to enjoy, there were a whole cavalcade of record companies who competed to get a piece of this pie. But the big three who really comprised the industry, were Pate, EMI, and Great China. Pate would later merge with EMI, and this company became the dominant force in the industry. Another big player in the budding music market was the Japanese Victor Company. They were associated with RCA in the States, and they too jumped into the market in Shanghai. Today, this company is called JVC. Yeah, you know them. Japan Victor Company. Yeah, everything was in Shanghai. One-stop shopping, the recording business, record pressing, radio stations and broadcasting, the movie business. Run Run Shaw, remember him? CHP episode 49. He passed away in 2014 at the ripe old age of 107. He and his brothers, too, were blazing the trail for Chinese cinema. Their Tianyi Film Studios was already up and running in 1925. This is the outfit that later on became Shaw Brothers and TVB. Mid to late 20s and into the 30s, the ideas, the music, the talent, the machines and infrastructure, all happened at the same time. By 1930, the American jazz sound that had first made its way to Shanghai in the 1920s created a kind of culture that by the 1930s had already penetrated all the clubs, ballrooms, and dance halls of Shanghai. And one of the grandest joints located in the French concession was a place called the Kenadrome. That's where the uh, Shanghai Cultural Square is today, the Shanghai Wenhua Guangchang. The original structure was torn down in 2006, and not long after Shanghai was taken over by the communists in 1949, the place ended up being used as an execution ground for a lot of those early casualties of liberation. Hundreds would get shot in a single day. Thousands met their end there. But in the 1930s, this was the most happening place in town. And if you weren't a somebody or filthy rich, it was off limits. 
You can see some of the old black and white photos of the ballroom inside the canadrome. Very swanky. Everything you could imagine from the Roaring Twenties. When it was constructed in 1928, you could fit as many as 50,000 spectators inside the canadrome. And from the prefix caney, you might have guessed it had something to do with dogs. It was built as a dog track. They had greyhound races there. It's got quite a history. But the complex also contained a ballroom. And at this ballroom at the Canadrome during the 1930s was the scene of a party that lasted all the way up to the time the Japanese took over after 1937. Big names from the States were brought over to provide jazz and big band entertainment. One of the most famous was Teddy Weatherford, a jazz pianist who, well, he isn't that well-known today, I guess. If you search for him on Spotify, he's only got one song that's part of an early jazz compilation. But in his day, the 1920s and 30s, he was quite well-known and had come to Shanghai in September 1926, along with the drummer and bandleader Jack Carter. And I guess you could call Teddy Weatherford one of the early ambassadors of American jazz to China and Southeast Asia, and India too, where he also played with his band after he left China. Teddy Weatherford is called by some as the godfather of Indian jazz, and he died of cholera in Calcutta in 1945 at the age of 41. Hollywood should most definitely look into his story. So Teddy Weatherford was a hot ticket in Shanghai in the early 1930s and was a regular performing at a whole bunch of night spots. In 1934, Teddy Weatherford was called upon to find a new band who could become like the house band at the Canadrome. And this is when he tracked down Buck Clayton in Chicago and brought him and his band to Shanghai. And they were a huge hit. The posters all over town billed the Canadrome as, quote, the rendezvous of Shanghai's elite. Music by Teddy Weatherford presenting Buck Clayton and his Harlem gentlemen, end quote in such a cosmopolitan and sophisticated society as 1930s Shanghai, Teddy Weatherford, Buck Clayton, and all these other black musicians from the States and elsewhere, they were stars, admired, respected. Some of the locals were were even in awe of them. That's how exciting the Shanghai jazz scene was. It was fizzing. They were They were a kind of royalty who were in a class by themselves, like Josephine Baker, who was dazzling the crowds in Paris at the exact same time. You might be wondering why I mentioned this guy, Mr. Wilbur Dorsey, Buck Clayton. What did this mostly forgotten jazz great have to do with our story? Well, during his two years in Shanghai, Buck Clayton got hooked up with Li Jinhui, and those two collaborated on a lot of material that got heard on the radio, performed at the clubs, and sung in the movies that were all the rage. And Buck Clayton helped Li Jinhui by teaching him and helping him to better understand the jazz sound by offering up some of that secret sauce that could only be learned by doing time at the jazz clubs in places like Harlem, New Orleans, and Chicago. Buck Clayton, during the short two-year stint he spent in Shanghai, became a major influence on the tunes that Li Jinhui started putting out after 1935 when the Sherdacher sound was really taken off like gangbusters. And up on the bandstand at the Canadrome and in other clubs and ballrooms he played at, Buck Clayton and his... Harlem gentlemen performed a whole bunch of Li Jinhui numbers. Everyone was a crowd pleaser, a blend of East 
and West, appreciated all around. Madame Jiang Kai-shek herself, as well as her older sister, Song Ai-ling, who were regulars there, whooping it up with all the other who's-who's of Shanghai. Song Ai-ling even requested tap dancing lessons from Buck, and he got one of his band members to oblige this wife of one of China's richest men. Buck Clayton ended up getting tossed out of the Canadrome for a fight that ensued with one race-baiting reveler who wanted to take Buck Clayton down a notch. Words were spoken, and there was a brawl right there on the ballroom floor, and that spelled the end of Buck Clayton's run at the Canadrome. He bounced right back and got a new gig at a place called Casanova. He stayed there and continued to perform until he saw the writing on the wall in 1936, a year before the bombing of Shanghai started. He worked with Li Jinhui quite a bit, and though he might not be a big name today, for a while at least, in Shanghai for a couple years, Buck Clayton flew the American flag well and left China, having made a contribution to the Shanghai jazz and Shidaichu sound. He ended up blowing his trumpet for Count Basie's orchestra after the gig in Shanghai and kept on playing till the end. Buck Clayton, in his autobiography, called those two years he spent in Shanghai the best of his life. He lived quite a fun-filled and eventful life and passed away in 1991 at the age of 80. This sound that had been created, this Chinese jazz or Sinified jazz, kept growing in popularity thanks to radio, records, and movies. Live shows were also broadcasted right from the big band ballrooms in Shanghai, and Li Jinhui's stable of singers that he had cultivated through the song and dance ensembles he managed were at the forefront of all the excitement and growing popularity. And not just in China, remember. It was popular, but it didn't take long for this Shitaichu music to be branded by its detractors as yellow music. Huangse Yinyue. When I was a kid, they used to call all these 8mm porn movies, blue movies. I'm not sure why the color blue was used to describe this genre of film. In Chinese culture, the color yellow was the blue equivalent. Yellow was the adjective used to brand something as pornographic. After 1949, this music was banned in the PRC for its alleged corrupting influence and for its association with that sliver of Shanghai culture that was considered capitalist, decadent, and immoral. It had no place in the new China. From then till Mao's death, red was the only color of song that was going to be allowed in the proverbial jukebox. All lyrics in praise of either the new China or Mao himself. Let me just add that Li Jinhui and Elvis Presley had the same problem. Pretty much from the get-go, both of their music was attacked by some elements of society as a kind of abomination. It was corrupting, sexually suggestive, and was accused of giving off an overall negative influence on young people and society. And like with the king, despite all the outrage from the more conservative and traditional parts of Chinese society, Li Jinhui's music and the performances he put on all over the place with his song and dance troops, it was wildly popular. Li Jinhui went to work grinding out dozens and dozens and dozens of hits. 
I told you his brother, Li Qingguang, was right there with him during this phase. And the more this sound got out into the market, the more you had pushback from those parts of society who saw this new music as the end of the world. And not only did these folks outside of China continue the Shanghai pop tradition, but preserved it as well. Remember the 78 records? Well, not only do they break easily, but they burn easily as well. If any of these recordings on the mainland managed to survive the Great Leap Forward, they certainly didn't stand a chance during the Cultural Revolution. Luckily, the Chinese diaspora were able to preserve whatever works by Li Jinhui and others that might have been destroyed during those 10 years of chaos in China. Li Jinhui had to put up with a lot of outrage vented in his direction by those who attacked him as this purveyor of corrupting morals, selling out to the Westerners, and for dragging Chinese culture through the gutter. But if you dug a little deeper into Li Jinhui's life, he was a patriot to the very end. Aside from these tunes that were, you know, the earliest classics of Shidaichu music, he was also known for many of the patriotic anthems he wrote and for all the work he did to promote Mandarin speaking among the masses. You know, back in those days, Mandarin, or Putonghua as it's referred to today, it wasn't so widespread. The Chinese masses, including the young people, communicated with each other in their local dialects, which, as you can imagine, made no contribution as a unifying force in the country. So all that achievement and music aside, Li Jinhui, and especially, as I mentioned earlier, his elder brother, Li Jinxi, they played very important roles in the teaching and mainstreaming of Mandarin nationally. All these popular songs he wrote were all sung in Mandarin. So Li Jinhui, he had done so much to marry this sound of American jazz music and pairing it in a tasteful way with the local traditional sounds. And the fruits of his effort attracted a lot of Chinese listeners. Obviously, this Shitaichu music was more popular with the under-30 crowd and city folk than with the old-timers. Like I said, same thing with rock and roll in America during the 1950s and 60s. This is one of those cases where you know, the history isn't exactly the same, but in this case, it rhymes. Well, sorry we didn't get to them today. In the next episode, we are going to explore the lives of all seven of these singing stars who owed their careers to Li Jinhui, either directly or indirectly. In the eight years from that first hit song, Mao Mao Yu, in 1927, into the mid-1930s, Li Jinhui had been the primary guiding hand that had created and popularized this new sound. And from his Moonlight Song and Dance Troupe and other similar ensembles that had performed all over China and across Southeast Asia, came the seven women we'll introduce next episode. Zhou Xuan, Bai Hong, Bai Guang, Yao Li, Li Xianglan, Wu Yingyin, and Gong Chiu Xia. Mr. Spun Counter Guy out in the great state of Kentucky, thanks for all your behind-the-scenes assistance and all you did in getting this topic out of storage and helping it become a reality. I might need to call you back when we do part two. Thanks for having me on, Laszlo. For an old CHP fan like me who used to listen to your show back in the day, living on the mainland, I'm just so proud to be here. Mr. Spun Counter Guy, in the corner, back by the Woodpile Podcast. There's a link to that show at the teacup.media website, and I'll also have a link to that episode you did featuring all that Shirdaichu music. 
Until that time, mes amis, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Southern California, the city of Los Angeles, beseeching you, as I often do, to consider joining me next time for another exhilarating episode of the China History Podcast. Again, if you're looking for more Chinese history, go over to teacup.media and you can look through all the multiple topics Laszlo has covered. Also, we feature China-related topics from time to time, the most recent being In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 183, where we discuss the great Chinese novel Journey to the West. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 